0: From Hollywood, it's rated LGBT Radio, starring your host Rob
1: Watson.
0: Hello, 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 hello. hello. Uh, Yes, you are listening to Rated LGBT Radio, and I'm your host, Rob Watson. Uh, today, we, we don't have any guest per se. It is just going to be uh, my regular co host, Brody Levesque, and myself, just us chickens. Um, we are recording today's show on September 11th, 2020. And the reason that is kind of significant is that it is 2011. Uh, I'm sorry, it is September 11th, 9 um, I wish it was two thousand eleven uh no uh anyway um it is that day every year that we look back and now we are looking back nineteen years since uh September eleventh two thousand and one and uh that was a date that significantly changed our country, our world um and many many outlooks. And um, this year it is kind of interesting because that was a major crisis for the country um, where this year we have a lot of crises happening across the board. And so we're gonna look at um, the reaction to September 11, 2001, and um, look at what's happened since then and look at the reaction to crisis in our modern-day world in 2020 when the year itself seems to signify crisis of uh, many colors. And we're also going to be talking about um, a statistic in that reaction, which is that suicide rates, especially among younger people, are going up. And, um, and it is tied into um, the crises that we're experiencing right now. So um, we've we've got a lot to talk about, and like I said, it's just a chicken. So I'm going to uh, <laughs> bring on the other big chicken, <laughs> Brody Levesque. Hey, Brody.
2: Well, thank you. At least I'm not getting the analogy of the big onion. Uh, good afternoon. Well, that's to... true. No, we we saved that <laughs> for other people. <laughs> we saved that for other people. Okay. All right. That that worked. Good afternoon, Rob. Hi yeah. to all of our owners, Um yeah, it's. Uh, I did a post um, actually uh, before I retired for the evening uh, as it was already uh, September 11 on the East Coast and it was working into the 11th here on the West Coast. And it was a reflection of that morning. It was a Tuesday morning. It was really sunny and, and mild uh, for a September well, day. And Yeah, go ahead.
0: Yeah, Brody. Before yeah, before we get into nine eleven, I want to uh, ask Perfect. you about a few things that have happened recently, just in the news, so we can kind of uh, touch on them before we get into the the bigger subject. Um, okay. So this this week, uh, Los Angeles Times endorsed Joe Biden for president, um, which yeah, see. seems to be a little bit of an unprecedented move. Um, tell us what what that was all about.
2: The fact that many of these newspapers, including the Times and even some conservative papers like the Chicago Tribune uh, and others, are leaning towards endorsements of the Biden-Harris ticket is significant. It means that overall, um, they, the newspapers themselves are seeing uh, that the country's just moved completely in the wrong direction. There's absolutely no faith Whatsoever, Trump. None. Zero zip. Um, It's the relentless attacks on the media, the constant lying, the uh, revelations uh, from my journalistic uh, colleague, Bob Woodward's book, Rage, uh, which was put out this week, uh, where the first thing of note was the fact that Trump sat there and admitted that he downplayed the virus. Uh, In his words, because he didn't want to create a panic yet, back in February, he admitted that he knew that it was an airborne virus and that it was deadly. Um, It's also, you know, the comments and remarks that he made about veterans and serving members of the U.S. military and military members that have been killed. It is the fact that he revealed the existence uh, of a previously classified Uh, nuclear weapon uh brand new developed nuclear weapon system it is the never-ending parade of corruption not just within the white house but throughout the entire administration uh the most recent glaring example being the postmaster general Uh, it just it's become a pile-on and the media um particularly the newspapers and even some of the broadcast uh media corporations are saying you know enough um the outlet that i happen to be an editor for uh did the rare thing normally doesn't uh the los angeles blade previously in the past has not done endorsements uh neither has our sister publication the washington blade this year is an exception we endorsed the biden Harris ticket um there are probably those that are saying well for the press who's left leaning anyway that's intuitive But that's actually not true. The press is not left leaning That's the messaging of the Trump administration and the Republican Party. Um, They're just an entire pile on here because there is so much fatigue from one crisis after the other and rolling from one problem to the next. No resolution, no end in sight. The the constant parade of negativity, uh, the violence that continues to break out Uh, And, of course, now we have even more crises uh, environmentally caused piling on that. The city of Portland, Oregon, about two hours ago, was notifying its residents that, guess what, you guys may have to bail because of the wildfires. So it's just all of this, and these papers are sitting there, Rob, and they're saying it's a failure of leadership on his part, bottom line.
0: Yeah, no, uh, I want to go back to one thing you were talking about in terms of the Woodward book that came out, Um, it's sort of mind-numbing. First of all, uh, he didn't really tell anybody anything new. Um, You know, those who are um, bothered by Donald Trump, which is a a large amount of people, um, we already knew he knew. (laughs) I mean, nobody really had to tell us that. It did confirm it, and it confirmed it on tape which um, was, was significant, um, but it doesn't for, and this is one of the things I want to ask you about in a few minutes, it doesn't mm-hmm. seem to convince anybody who is already pro-Trump, um, but it, it creates these mind-numbing situations where um, his press secretary walks in, talks in front of a room of your peers, um, journalists, um, mm-hmm. saying, uh, you're, you're referencing something he, quote, unquote, allegedly told Bob Woodward. And the journalist said, um, hello, it's on tape. <laughs> it's like, yeah. this isn't alleged, it's real. Um, but the, that the Trump administration, with the ilk that they preach to and all the people who crowd at these events and everything else, has, to your point, on the flip side, that this has been so much so constant that the people that are need convincing are deaf. Um, And I mean, I guess for me, the the biggest concern I have is that um, the polling numbers for Trump in the election have actually gone up this week. What what is going true. on?
1: There?
0: We saw in an NBC Marist poll
2: earlier in the week uh, that Trump and Biden were tied 48-48 in terms of overall in case of likely voters. Trump actually edged the former vice president out by a single point. Um, and that is actually disconcerting. We're seeing polling numbers going up in battleground states uh, such as Michigan, which. Uh, Trump did win before, uh, Wisconsin, again, uh, we're seeing them edge up uh, in traditionally Republican strong uh, holds such as South Carolina, uh, Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, and of course, Louisiana. Um, and a good deal of that um, has to do uh, with the divisiveness and the polarity um, within the American political landscape now. Um, There is more of a push, I think, by the Democrats uh, and by the political strategists uh, away from trying to convince any of the core base or any of the core Republicans to support the president, because that's flat out not going to happen. What I think they're targeting now are literally the nearly 50 percent of all the voters that sat 2015 out. And that would be your independents. Uh, and your moderate Republicans, which, believe it or not, still exist. Um, these are the people that need to be convinced that it is critical to get to the polls to vote. Complicating, however, this effort is the overlay of not only just the pandemic itself, but what it's done to the voting infrastructure, which Trump has capitalized on uh, with his relentless attacks on uh, mail-in uh, balloting. Uh, and the constant drumming of the fact that he sees it as fraudulent. Um, Yesterday in uh, an interview with my colleagues uh, at NBC News, the Secretary of State uh, of Michigan pointed out that because they aren't getting the funds from Congress to shore up what's going to be needed uh, to make the voting process as smooth as possible, that they're just going to have to stumble through it now. What cripples them is the fact that you have not only just a dysfunctional post office, but a broken one. Uh, So it it complicates, as the Secretary of State uh, told NBC News, the overall issue. And Michigan is not alone in that regard. We're finding this in other places as well. Um, The thing that really probably doesn't help above and beyond anything else is when you have the president of the United States screaming at the top of his lungs, uh, fear-mongering. He did it again uh, today in rallies in Pennsylvania. Um, He's painting a very dark vision of Joe Biden's America. But the whole thing is, Rob, it's all based on fallacy, lies, deceptions, and quite frankly, uh, you know, just almost a paranoia, if you will. The baseline problem is that the Democrats are going to have to get the independents and and the Republican voters that are moderate that are completely um, disenchanced with Trump and and his nonsense uh, to basically break free from party voting and going into voting for the Biden-Harris ticket. The other part of this is that it's also going to be very much a down-ballot issue, particularly in some critical senatorial races, such as South Carolina, where Lindsey Graham is running a pretty close uh, race, and of course, other places like Arizona, where Mark Kelly's running a close race, uh, and uh, even Mitch McConnell, who's looking like he's out ahead of his Democratic challenger, but that could change. So... All of these facts put together give you kind of the overlay for what we're seeing right now. Um, this but, is indeed. But, go ahead, Rob.
0: Yeah. Um, Trump is hammering in on his law and order and, and part of his fear mongering is specifically mm-hmm. on the protests and um, yes. some of the places where those are the most heavy, are the states that um, are the battleground that, that you mentioned? Um, are those protests hurting? Are, I mean, because um, let's face it, voters vote selfishly. They vote from their own little world. And, I, and a lot of what is not seeming to resonate is the Trump scandals. They've, they've become numb to it. We're sitting in various crises. They're seeing, you know, rioting in the streets that they would rather not have going on there. Um, so is that what is, and we're talking not the whole population itself, but that middle ground of people who to me are, are kind of a mystery anyway, because somebody who's sitting there who is, you know, not quite sure whether they're going to vote for Trump or not, quite frankly, is a mystery to me. I don't know why somebody would be in that level of potential confusion, but they're obviously there, um you know and if they're there and they're seeing all this rioting and and being um persuaded that it's violent um is his message working
2: I think the reason his messaging is working is because there is a sense of complacency with the American voting public and that has been a long problem. This is not just a new thing. This this stretches back uh, almost to the literally almost to the you know middle of the 1820s, 1830s. Um, it 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 literally is complacency. The 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 voters, I think, in some cases, just throw their hands up in the air and go, "Well, you know, what can I do about it?" And and that's a very dangerous place for a voter to be. Uh, Framing the context of, you know, uh, of this entire political spectrum. Um, You can't afford to take that position. There are too many, however, that do. Um, The other thing that I think uh, more recently uh, has been the crafting of the message rather successfully um, since, Just towards the end of the Reagan administration, but in particular about the time uh, Newt Gingrich launched the contract for America and a Republican takeover in the midterms in 1994, that was establishing the groundwork uh, for what later occurred. Um, The Democrats have not been able to counter that kind of, you know, negative messaging. If you look at Republican Party rule the republicans have been in power since reagan longer than the democrats have the the democrats had 16 years they had bill clinton and they had barack obama both of those presidencies okay were under constant siege and under constant attack the obama administration got hemmed in because of absolute racism and intolerance from the republicans there's no polite way of putting it um, right down to questioning whether or not he was even born American, which was where Trump came out of that grouping. You look at Bill Clinton, and, you know, here's the situation where it developed into the impeachment of Bill Clinton. So you're bookending 16 years of Democratic rule with Republican and conservatism and a way of thought. There have been some victories in social issues along the way, uh, LGBTQI rights, of course. But I would also note that most of those were won in court battles. So, you know, it, it's really kind of a scary thing. Trump is able to be Trump, not just only because of the complacency of the, of the voters, but because the groundwork was laid uh, mostly in, in, in the uh, midterms of 94 with the first Republican takeover of the House and the Senate. That's really where it started. Um, and then it was bolstered by the extremism of the members of George uh, W. Bush's cabinet and his government, which were then in turn exasperated uh, by what happened uh, 19 years ago this date. So it's just kind of this pylon. So Trump's messaging of law and order is going to partially resonate with some of those people. And that they're not looking through the forest to see the single tree of reality is really what the problem is here. And then they're not convinced enough that their vote really matters. The younger people, the the generations that are your sons, um, up to, you know, some of the young people that you and I both know that are in their mid twenties, that, that, that spectrum right there is where a lot of change will probably occur. And a lot of what's being driven for change brought about by things such as, you know, the school shooting issues and and the Black Lives Matter. So there is an awakening. But the question becomes, is there awakening enough to get the people into the ballot box to get them to change things? And then the most difficult aspect of it all, if anything, a prison complication is, in fact, this COVID crisis, a pandemic over the overlay. So it's kind of like a pile on.
0: Fair answer to your no, question. No, it's definitely, it yeah, it's definitely places, yeah, it's definitely you know? it's, it's it's well, it's definitely a pylon. I'm not convinced that it's complacency, um, at least not complacency in uh, <coughs> that people are Middle America are not really caring or not really, you know, you know, uh, participating in the system and just you know kind of doing something rote. I I think that part of the the behavior there is that everything you described in terms of this, this overwhelmingness of problems. And then people are looking at their own lives where they're struggling themselves. And Mm -hmm. it's um, they're being asked to tackle everything from systematic racism to climate change, to this virus, to all these things that are way out of their control and they're just trying to figure out how they're going to pay their mortgage or they're going to pay their rent or if they're going to have a job. And um, Trump, you know, even though the economy is bad right now, it's like nobody he, – he did the PR to get people to believe that the good economy that was prior to uh, – and I'm going to put quotes, unquote, good economy um, – prior mm-hmm. to uh, the virus hitting was because of him. Which it wasn't, and you know, and it wasn't even all that good of an economy when you look at it in terms of the existence in the middle class. but I, I think there is going to be an effect if Biden doesn't come out with more proactive solutions and vision on how to solve people's lives that is going to hurt him. Um, Because right now we're sitting in a, um, you know, look what a big train wreck Trump is, isn't it awful, you know, and hoping that people just think anything that is better than that. And I don't know, you know, this guy is is greasier than hell and nothing sticks to him. And, um, you know, it's so that scares me. I mean, it scares Mm -hmm. me another four years of donald trump scares me and i think um, something something has got to change um, in 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 giving people hope you know it's it's not enough just to say hope it's got they've got to actually be able to taste it um, with joe biden And I think well he he's a little invisible right he he had an
2: interview yesterday with my colleague uh Jake Tapper from CNN and uh, they sat down in Michigan uh where he was campaigning at that moment and they talked about uh you know the revelations coming out of the 18 hours of recording uh that you know went into Bob's book and then they also talked a little bit about some of the statements and things that you know Trump has made and you know the reactions from uh, Biden were very much heartfelt and, and very much, you know, keeping in character, um, you know, with the way that, you know, Joe Biden is. Um, the problem is going to be, again, messaging. Now, interestingly enough, uh, his vice presidential um, running mate uh, candidate, um, Senator Kamala Harris of California, is staying very much on messaging and putting that out there. I think Biden is finding himself in a difficult place because not only is he um, the candidate for the Democratic nomination, but he's also finding himself thrust into the role okay, of comforter because people just need that because they haven't gotten it from Trump. I mean, all they've gotten from Trump has just been callous, you know, just you know, I don't even want to go there. But the question is, yeah, is yeah, worth Joe's character enough, you know, are the Americans going to trust him from a policy point of view uh, in order to make the significant changes where their lives will be directly impacted? A lot of that right now is revolving around two significant issues. Number one, of course, being this virus. That if you talk to most voters, and, and I, I talk to our – polling people probably at least every couple days the number one thing that we keep hearing back is you know virus economy what am i going to do um you know in a in a kind of a micro study of that uh in the city of west hollywood california which is the heart of uh, the LGBTQI community for many years in los angeles Uh, They are now losing businesses left and right, including uh, they just lost three major nightclub and bars, which were basically anchors uh, for the community there. And it was all because of this crisis. Um, Even if they're able to come out the other end, you know, there's nothing to stop the hemorrhaging in terms of not enough cash flow to pay the current rent plus the back rent. So Biden is going to have to look at things just like that. And, and governments, even, even Newsom has acknowledged, the governor of California has acknowledged, government's going to have to play a much, much greater role. Without that role, you know, it's going, to be, it's going to be an epic depression, probably even blowing past, you know, the historic downs of the Great Depression of the 1930s. And that really becomes a critical thing you know, do you buy into Trump's Cooley that, you know, this is what's going to get better and we'll take care of this when you've got the Senate locked up fighting with the House on whether or not they'll deliver more stimulus money to the American you know, people. In the meantime, the barn owner sitting there in West Hollywood is going, but I had to close my doors. I'm done. You know, right. I'm, that's it. Right. 37 years. I'm finished. What are you going to do? And, and this now suddenly yeah. trickles uh, into households, you know?
0: No, yeah. No, absolutely it does because one of the big issues with the, the recovery attempt is the recovery attempts have all been on the front end. In other words, you know, it's been getting people some money to buy some food. Um, you know, it's given them the ability to delay rent or mortgage, but not forgive it. Meaning they, they, we, the, the people on the front end have to come up with that money at some point somehow and the people who've been protected have been um, the ones at the top because they're not taking a hit. They're not, you know, the banks have not said, the mortgage holders, the, the um, uh, you know, the, the landlords have not said, oh, okay, we're just going to figure we're going to get less money, which will happen because people will, uh, will not be able to pay it. The money won't be there to pay that, so you will have bankruptcies. You will have uh, um, people being evicted eventually. I mean, and you know, it's and nobody is putting into place that reality or, or a solution to that reality. So it it is, you know, something that the the cracks in the the pipeline of the economy are, are going to fall apart at, at some point here. And um, that that is going to be incredibly, incredibly difficult. Well, and
2: and again, the, the biggest problem for the Democrats right now, okay, is getting some sort of unified. Concrete solution or proposal for a solution. But then again, you have one thing standing in the way of this, and that is unless. Unless the Democrats are able to control all three branches of government, then nothing's going to get done. Because all it's going to right. take is that Senate to stay in Republican hands. And it doesn't mean, it doesn't matter, you know, what the Democrats in the House do. It doesn't matter what President Biden, if he becomes president, does. If you can't get anything through the Senate and you have the same kind of problems that we saw McConnell gave the Obamas, administration. What people aren't, I think, truly understanding is that the boil over factor is already there with the public. They've had enough. They're not going to take another four years, even with a Biden White House, okay, of inactivity caused by obstruction. There's too much at stake. Sooner or later, that's going to spill over. And if that does in fact happen, OK, it's going to make what happened in Kenosha, Portland, Oregon, Chicago and some of these other American cities look like a block party. And that's really what the real fear is. And this isn't me fearmongering. This is me standing very calmly, very matter of factly, you know, in conjunction with a lot of information that we've been given from people and the American government that this is a fully anticipated scenario. This is it this this is exactly the point that the american republic has got found itself at and that's not really a really good place to go this goes beyond you know a breaking point so this is why this election becomes even more critical it's it's you know how do you maintain the tenets you know of a democracy and how do you maintain you know a a system where everybody you know works within it if nothing happens inactivity sooner or later is, is going to run right up against human nature. And and that's really what this boils down to. But the problem with it for the United States is you must absolutely must factor in the extremist levels that have occurred both on the left and the right. Okay. Because it's gotten really, really seriously ugly. OK, so it's one of those things where Biden's got to consider this. Trump doesn't care. Trump's Trump's whole thing is law and order. Trump is like, I mean, the Trump administration comes up with all sorts of things, you know, to expand even an authoritarian state. You know, I, I, a little micro example uh, was that now the administration's Homeland Security people have issued a proposal to expand DNA and metric, biometric data collection, okay, of immigrants to include American citizens who are sponsoring them. Now, the ACLU, of course, is raising all sorts of red flags, and, right? You know, kind of the "oh my god" thing. But that's where their mindset is. They they don't have a problem with that, and that's that's really
0: where. Well, no, it yeah, gets, of course they don't. It, you know, and and that's that again goes to. Here's, here's the, the, the core of the problem. It's what you're describing is a symptom. It's not the problem. The problem is, is that the country isn't a democracy. It is ruled by a few. It is being led by the states with lesser populations than the urban centers, um, and the systems, including the Senate and the Electoral College, support that. So the election is won by these states that are these, quote-unquote, swing states, which are not the most populous states. And they, you know, it's like everybody – or in the past election, people were crediting Trump because he you know, played the election right so that he got the votes of the Electoral College, where uh, Clinton got the popular vote by millions. And that if Trump wins again, that will be the case. He will not win the popular vote. He won't even come close to it. And, again, he will be a president that is not elected by a democracy. And the Senate, to your point, of the part of the government that is obstructionist, is run by senators from these less populous states. And the, mm-hmm. the states that that are represented by by senators who are in front of the majority of the population are like 10 senators out of 50 or out of a hundred, you know? And so it's like, it, it, it is, you know, the, the formula that was constructed for this representative government is breaking down because population is not growing in a proportionate way as was originally part of the original vision. And the original vision was already flawed because it was all based on white male property owners as being the yeah. citizens. So yeah. you know, it's like we've got, you know, and Trump um, plays to that strategy because everything you're talking about is speaking to to concerns of the the vast population in an urban center. He, he isn't, you know, he isn't scaring the people that are actually swaying the election because they don't care if, if people don't, you know, their DNA doesn't match up right. These guys have got the, the you know, protected DNA, if you will. You know, it's um, – so, I mean, it's there – there is a huge, huge core issue that nobody is ready to address at this point. Now the
2: problem is we're also seeing a lack of it being addressed more strongly and more urgently – uh, by the Biden campaign, and that in and of itself is very problematic.
0: Yeah, exactly, and- because it's, it's, it's again, it's, it's something that's been said long before, is that Biden cannot run based on just being not Trump. He, he can't do that, and unfortunately, he has been doing that. He did that in the primaries where he essentially just was not Sanders. And so, you know, and, and, you know, and if it wasn't for the African-American vote coming out from in South Carolina, he probably would have gone down because he hadn't done that. And, you know, um, so, so I don't know. Um, This is, this is, this is hard. And, um, you know, those of us who care have got to figure out a strategy and, um, I'm hopeful that the Biden-Harris um, campaign gets with it and gets, you know, some some stronger firepower as if they weren't running against Trump, um, you know, and give, give vision. I mean, Obama won the first time because he excited people. He gave people vision. And he probably would have achieved that vision, to your point, if he wasn't obstructed by a Senate that was – out to do nothing but stop him, you know, and um, and and we've got to turn this around. We absolutely have to, um, Brody. I want to shift gears here, though, to mm-hmm. one of the reactions to what is going on, and that is the rising suicide level. I mean, you yeah. made reference to the fear that you know this is going to erupt with the the extremist factions you know, being violent in the streets and violence is already happening in the private. Um, -hmm. talk to us about that.
2: The centers for disease control in Atlanta published a study, um, based on some surveying, uh, they had done, uh, in June and what they were looking at specifically was how the COVID, uh, pandemic and crisis, was affecting uh, the population base. And they came across a rather jarring statistic that um, really uh, kind of uh, wasn't one that you would have thought of. 26% of adults between 18 to 24 um, have considered suicide. And according to the researchers with the CDC, That number is a direct result of a significant role uh, that it has played. Um, uh, Rashawn Lane, who is head of the CDC's uh, COVID-19 response team, uh, said this in an email statement to me. Mental health conditions are disproportionately affecting specific populations, especially young adults. you know, that's one of the things that it just kind of you, you look at that and you go, but wait, uh, why would they be in that kind of a group? And, and and a lot of the responses to the survey and a lot of it was because, quite frankly, they saw no hope. They, they didn't see, you know, the end of it. They, they were taking such a hard apocalyptic view, if you will, uh, you know, in our own LGBTQI uh, community. Uh, We've long held that uh, bullying and ostracization and the damages inflicted by organized religion, especially the far-right Christian groups and things like that, have long been a contributing factor uh, to the high and disproportionate amount of suicides uh, in our own community, particularly with our trans youth. Um, But now here you have a study that says, well, you know, has taken as a whole, we have a problem and it, it really kind of distills down to a lack of hope. Uh, you know, they don't see coming out the other side. What they see is an ineffective response to the crisis, not just by the Trump administration, but globally. They are watching a social upheaval that has, quite frankly, not been seen in this country since the days of the Vietnam War protests and the civil rights marches and that movement of that era, um, which to them was in history books, quite frankly. Um, So they, they have no first-hand experience, and then not having that sense of hope and just bereft of seeing any changes. You know, jobs are going away. Employers are going away. All these things are going away. You know, where does it end? Where does it stop? Where's the benefit? And that really just triggers a lot of, you know, this depressive state. And and again, it, it in part because there aren't any readily identifiable solutions uh to a lot of the questions that are being asked.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's I mean it's it it is difficult and it is um kind of characteristic of the crises that we are facing now versus, um, for example, when of the, the subjects we're talking about today is um, 9-11, the original nine eleven, 11 the 9 uh, 2001. And, um, you know, that wasn't, that wasn't our collective reaction to that, that depression and futility and everything else that happened after that. Um, Brody, you started at the top of the show to talk about your experience that day. Tell us a little <laughs> bit about what that was like.
2: Um, I was substituting, uh, for, uh, a reporter, uh, who had, uh, taken leave of absence. And so it was a new beat for me. And I'd only been to the Pentagon a few times, uh, to cover briefings. Um, and uh, that particular morning, I, um, checked in at our office, and then I wandered over to the subway at Gallery Place and rode over to the Pentagon. And in those days, uh, you could get off the train and literally enter uh, the building directly from the subway station, and you had to pass the security and show them your you know, badges and all that. And then you, it, it lets you off in an area that we call a concourse, which is basically a little commercial shopping district, if you will, uh, in the bottom of the building. And I grabbed a cup of coffee and grabbed a dance or something. And then I headed for the press area. And when I got in there, virtually everybody was clustered around television sets. And, uh, you know, I, 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 you know, this was pre smartphones or, you know, iPhones didn't exist in 2001. And so there was no alerts and no, you know, didn't know. Right. And You
0: know,
2: I was just shocked because tower one was on fire. There's all this black smoke. And then suddenly about not even a couple minutes after I arrived in the room, suddenly all this smoke started pouring out of tower two. And uh, the camera that was on it was at the angle away. Uh, So we didn't at first understand that a second plane had blown into the other tower. And then suddenly one of the announcers on the ground, yes, there was another plane. Oh, my God. And we're watching this. Not even 20 minutes later, the entire building I was in shook. I, I just, mm-hmm. I, My first thought was, my God, that was an earthquake. That's how strong it was. And then seconds right. after that, every bloody alarm in the building went off. And people started running and screaming and, you know, we, we tore out, we, we went out, I, I went out the river entrance and, and, and with a bunch of others and we kind of ran around the building. And when we got to the one side of the building that faces uh, the Columbia Pike um, and part of Arlington Cemetery, it, there was fire and heat and smoke and a smell that I'll never forget. And in the next 26 hours, we just visionettes of everything that happened. Um, it was surreal. Uh, you know, as a reporter, uh, you know that you're going to sometimes find yourself in situations that, you know, are extraordinary and, and extreme. And that morning at the Pentagon actually all the way through the day and into the night uh, until the next day morning when I finally got back to my apartment in Washington. Um, yeah, that just visionettes. It's it's right. the ambulances and the people and the trying to get the, you know, the military personnel that were, you know, their uniforms were just covered in blood and torn. And it, yeah, it was just something. It was a war zone. It really literally was a war zone. Right. it it went beyond catastrophe. I think
0: it's interesting. Yeah. I I just want to juxtapose that with my experience that day because I was set to speak at a convention in San Diego and got up that morning and was watching the news live and the first plane had hit the building and it was at that point that was you know, everybody's reaction was like Wow, what a bizarre freak accident that is. And there was concern about it. It was obviously everybody was paying attention to it because it was a freak. And um, then as we were watching, and I was watching this live as it happened, the second plane hit, and I did see it go into the building on, on television. And that was when everyone's alarms were going off that this was not Something new. And while you were literally sitting there at the Pentagon, then the report came that the third plane had hit the Pentagon. They switched to that. That was not captured live, at least um, in this report that I saw. Um, you know, it was already, it had already happened at that point. So for me in California, um, I had. A, it was sort of bizarre because I really didn't need it, but I had it. I'd gotten a rental car um, to go from the San Diego airport to the hotel and um, and was coming back to Northern California and called the rental car company to let them know that, um, guess what, <laughs> I'm not flying up, so I'm taking a rental car up north. And as I drove through California, first of all, I drove by the airport where all the planes were grounded and then that was a very surreal thing, looking at those planes, which were no longer just vehicles of transportation, but I now look at them as potential weapons. Um, but going through listening to the radio as I drove through every community in California going north, every community was filled with fear, was filled with sort of this feeling like a plane was going to land on them, which didn't happen and wasn't a real threat. Um, but it was this ridiculous calm and calm of repression of fear as I moved up north throughout California. And it, um, you know, all the while watching what was happening back back east and the horror and tragedy because the the thing of watching the Twin Towers themselves was watching the footage of all the first responders going in and literally knowing when the towers fell that the people you've been watching for the last hour, hour and a half, were still in there, um,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: and not coming out again, um, so that was bringing us into a, a unified experience that um, you know we we can't shake. Um, I, I kind of want to switch to the leadership of the country, as you you met and know george w bush yourself and Mm -hmm. i was not a fan wasn't a fan you know of him during his presidency but for america when he stepped forward in that aftermath everybody fell behind him and what what how would you characterize the difference of that leadership of that republican versus the republican we have now President Bush intuitively
2: knew that the entire country, in fact, the entire globe, would be looking to him to basically gauge reaction. And they needed the, the, the signals and the body language uh, that he was giving off, and, and he gave it. Um, he was assertive. He was strong. Uh, to use an over <laughs> a way way overused term he was presidential um, in the first hours, there was so much confusion and there was a lot of you know terror uh, at what had happened um, I was outside in the thick of the you know rescue efforts and everything we all we all were involved uh, so I never I didn't see the towers collapse and all of that and uh or even what was going on with the President uh, until actually uh, later on in that evening uh, when we took a break um, and you know we watched his address when it happened um, you know he took charge and he said we're we're going to get through this as a country we're we're going to take whatever precautions we need um I, it was surreal because not only were the skies emptied uh, over Washington, but uh, there were military uh, fighter jets on patrol and, and visibly on patrol, uh, which was just, it was disconcerting. It was the type of patrol that you'd see in a war zone. You, you contrast the immediacy and then, and then, you know, the president went to crown zero and he um he basically told, you know, his secret service detail, I'm doing this, I don't care what you think. And uh you know, he met with the firefighters and the first responders and he he got on to- on top of that pile of rubble and you know, he grabbed that one retired fire guy um and then he grabbed the bullhorn and you know His voice was the voice of all Americans at that point. And the difference between that and the reality star who thinks he's a president, uh, you can't get a greater contrast. Trump is, he's got no empathy. He's just this narcissistic, humorless being that doesn't understand basic empathy, basic humanity. Whereas with Bush, you know, not only that, but he knew and understood the way to the office, which is something that Biden pointed out to um, Jake Tapper uh, yesterday. Trump doesn't get it. He can never be a president because he does not understand what it truly means to be presidential. He's got no clue. He has no idea of what the weight of the office is. To him, it's just another opportunity to make money or to promote himself, and that's exactly what it's been with Bush. And there were a lot of things about Bush that, you know, a lot of people have problems with and find execrable. But the one thing that, you know, you have to give the president credit for is that when it came down to this moment in time, he was the glue that held the fabric of the United States and the globe, really, together at that moment, yeah. because it could have gotten seriously ugly
0: otherwise. Well, and it, it, true, very true, and and especially in the, the the psyche of the country. But what he did do, what his administration did do, was then to take us and get us into two wars, um, as yeah. as retribution for that, that, that event, which for me, in my opinion, was, was not good um, and was, was um, where it may have collected our focus um, in terms of Iraq was inappropriate, where Afghanistan, is, its appropriateness is, is at least rationalized, if not debatable. But um, that was where he took us. From from that point in time, um, juxtaposing that with Trump and the current crisis, Trump in many ways is the crisis himself. Um, yeah. you know, it's like he's he's especially in terms of COVID-19, he's the facilitator of the level of crisis um, behind it. Um, you know, in terms of the environment and um, climate change, is is uh, administration's lack of activity, um, a lack of initiative to uh, quell, you know, the, the effects of climate right now um, are part of the problem. You know, you can't blame it on them, but they're they're certainly doing nothing to alleviate the environment. That, and I'm talking about the, the environment, it's capital E environment, not, um, adjective environment or, or political or psyche environment that they they are not they're not being part of the solution which literally makes them the only tangible thing that is part of the crisis itself is um, just and and I guess the going back to our really discussion is how mm-hmm. much of the American population, is clearly identifying him as being the problem.
2: I think that there is a significant section of the population that is beginning to see it. I think that had it not been for COVID nineteen, Trump probably would have been reelected. I think that COVID nineteen has put that in in doubt. It's not a for certain, but it's definitely very much in doubt whereas I would have questioned with no COVID-19 that there would not have been another four years of a Trump administration. Um, So I, I think that the utter total lack of empathy and effective leadership will probably ultimately be his undoing. But the real question is whether Biden, Senator Harris, and more importantly, Democratic leadership, not just on Capitol Hill, but across the United States and the state houses and other places, can turn this around. It, the Republicans have proven that they have no interest in governing. They only have interest in power. When you have a party that has no interest in governing and its only interest is power, eventually something's got to give. And that's really what it boils down to. The voters are going to have to decide, And and it's on a micro level of whether that bridge gets fixed or that pothole gets filled or our kids have safe water to drink or good schools. It really becomes down to that issue at its very core. Do we want to put a party back in office that is only interested in enriching themselves, their buddies, and they don't honestly care about you, and they play kowtow to some pretty bizarre things? Or do you want a party that, while imperfect, at least we'll stumble through and try to govern. And that's really what this election comes down to. The American people right. have to make a choice. And that's really what the choice is.
0: Yeah, I think, I think, and I'm going to sum this up because we're running out of time here. Um, I think part of it is uh, we need a leadership. We need a leadership team that is visionary, that, that has um, some ideas of hope, to start to rebuild, um, not just in practical sense that we need it, but also psychically, we need it. Um, you know, Suicide rates are going up, the, you know, the effects are going deep on the crisis we've been through, and um, if they don't want the crisis to turn into a deeper mal- uh, malignancy in, in the American psyche, um, they need to get it together quickly. And um, not only to get into office, but to, to solve this. Because if they do get into office, guess what? These problems are now theirs. And they're not ones they can just point a finger at. Their, there, theirs that they have to solve. <clears throat> well, with that, we are out of time. Brody, I want to thank you, as always, for your thoughts and insights and uh, everything you do to inform the world and your other, other hat is, as uh, top-notch journalist. Um, I want to thank our listeners. Please do tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast. We will be back here again next week um, with uh, more thought-provoking ideas, thoughts, and guests. Um, And with that, for Brody and myself um, and Rated LGBT Radio, we will talk to you again then. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio.